it has all gone too far. All of it. Yep. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Burdent Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com, though I'm not feeling quite so swell today or uh, as much of a good fellow as I usually uh, like to be. 49 days. 49 days until Inauguration Day, 34 days until Election Day in Georgia in the two U.S. Senate runoffs that will determine control of the U.S. Senate. There are 12 days until the Electoral College casts its votes to finalize Election 2020, in theory. And there are six days until the federal statutory safe harbor deadline for resolving all election disputes for the Electoral College. In theory, that would be by next Tuesday. Welcome to the broadcast. Uh, hey, uh, some good news, Desi Doyen. Oh, God, yes. Thank you. Some good news for those who are tired of hearing about the president of the United States and his continuing and increasingly dangerous attempts to undermine and overthrow our constitutional democratic republic. Uh, well, after we uh, cover some of the increasingly disturbing developments on that front today, we will turn instead to something much less harrowing. That would be the assassination of another nuclear oh. scientist in Iran. So there you go. Oh. They're uh, also their ensuing promise to increase nuclear production and their vow to avenge the extra legal killing. So see, just to give you a break <laughs> from, from the all the ominous news. <laughs> yes, from the sturm and drong here at home. <sighs> but for now, you know, a, a week or two ago, I was not sure. 
uh, if I should give Trump's crazy attempted coup any airtime at all, since it was also insane and yes, also un-American. And as it turns out, while it may be un-American, this effort continues now a full month after Election Day has dragged me into it, in a way, as the author of a number of the now completely bastardized claims being made by the coup plotters, as warped from a number of my exclusive investigative reports on voting machine companies like Dominion and Smartmatic and their ties to the late Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez from some 10 years ago. And all of it has now turned increasingly dark with numerous death threats by Republicans against other Republicans, including one made this week by a former U.S. attorney, Joe DiGenova, who now works as an attorney for Donald Trump and who has called for Chris Krebs, the lifelong Republican and now fired former head of a federal U.S. cybersecurity watchdog agency to be shot for daring to declare either rightly or wrongly that the 2020 election was the most secure in American history. Anybody who thinks that this election went well, like that idiot Krebs, who used to be the head of cybersecurity. Oh, the guy that was on 60 Minutes last night. That guy is a class A moron. He should be drawn and quartered, taken out at dawn and shot. Taken out at dawn and shot. A U.S., a former U.S. attorney, now the uh, personal attorney to the president of the United States, calling for, uh, well, I guess it doesn't matter that he's a fellow Republican, calling for anybody to be uh, taken out at dawn and shot in this case because the man believes that the 2020 election was secure and accurate. That came amid separate death threats, apparently from Republican supporters of Donald Trump to the very Trumpy Republican governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, and the very Trumpy Republican secretary of state in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger both of whom have been very I have been very critical of in recent months and years, though not for what they are now being threatened for. You have managed to be critical of them without calling for them to be executed. Crazy. How, I know. how do I do it? Uh, so this these threats come in the wake of the president of the United States attacking both of those Republicans repeatedly on Twitter for somehow being in cahoots with Democrats to steal the election from Donald Trump in the peach state? Of course, all of that sounds absolutely insane because it is. But that is exactly what is actually going on now in our country. So it does seem worth uh, covering at least a bit here so you understand what this is all about when these madmen begin calling for the suspension of the Constitution and the tossing of the election results to prevent the winner of the presidential race, Joe Biden, from being sworn in as our next president. And if that sounds crazy, yes, it does. But guess what? Yes, that is now what they have begun to do. And so while I'd, I'd love to cover, frankly, just about anything else, even assassinations of Iranian nuclear scientists, which we will, it's important that you understand what is now going on in this country as all of this becomes increasingly incendiary and volatile and explosive, seemingly uh, more and more with each passing hour right around now. And to that end, 
While you may have heard some of this, you should hear it again and at length. If you haven't heard it at all, please pay attention. This is Gabe Sterling, the Republican, lifelong conservative voting systems manager in Georgia, who is sort of the second in command to Georgia's Republican, lifelong conservative secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, holding a press conference in the state. Uh, on Tuesday evening, as as the state is uh, beginning to wrap up, maybe has now wrapped up its statewide machine count of all the votes from the November 3rd presidential election in advance of the two upcoming January 5 runoff elections in Georgia for the U.S. Senate, which will, as I said, determine control of the upper chamber of Congress for the next two years. Now, both Incumbent Republican senators from Georgia, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, who both called for uh, Raffensperger to resign, though they offered no reason for that call other than that Donald Trump no longer likes him. Uh, they both now face very serious challenges from Democrats, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, on January 5. In any event, here's Gabe Sterling, who, by the way, we've also been very critical of on this program in the months leading up to the election, but somehow managed to not call for him to be killed. We've been critical for legitimate reasons, not because we are falsely claiming that he, a Republican, stole the election somehow for a Democrat as the president and his followers are now doing. Here's Gabe Sterling on Tuesday. I'm going to do my best to keep it together because it has all gone too far. All of it. Joe DeGeneva today asked for Chris Krebs, a patriot who ran CISA, to be shot. A 20-something tech in Gwinnett County today has death threats and a noose put out saying he should be hung for treason because he was transferring a report on batches from an EMS to a county computer so he could read it. It has to stop. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. We need you to step up, and if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. My boss, Secretary Raffensperger, his address is out there. They have people doing caravans in their house. They've had people come onto their property. Trisha, his wife of 40 years, is getting sexualized threats through her cell phone. It has to stop. This is elections. This is the backbone of democracy. And all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this. It's too much. Yes, fight for every legal vote. Go through your due process. We encourage you. Use your First Amendment. That's fine. Death threats. Physical threats. Intimidation. It's too much. It's not right. They've lost the moral high ground to claim that it is. I don't have all the best words to do this because I'm angry. And the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back today is, again, this 20-year-old contractor 
for a voting system company just trying to do his job. His family's getting harassed now. There's a noose out there with his name on it. It's, it's not right. I've got police protection outside my house. Fine. You know, I took a higher, higher profile job. I get it. Secretary ran for office. His wife knew that too. This kid took a job. He just took a job. And it's just wrong. I can't begin to explain the level of anger I have right now over this. And every American, every Georgian, Republican and Democrat alike should have that same level of anger. Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it. And you have the rights to go through the courts. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. And it's not right. I, I, it's not right. And y'all, I don't have anything scripted. This is... Like I said, I'm going to do my best to keep it together. All of this is wrong. All of this is wrong. That was the Republican voting system manager uh, for the state of Georgia who works for the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia trying to uh, get the point across to the Republican president of the United States and the two Republican senators of the state of Georgia that this has to stop. Following his impassioned remarks on Tuesday, Republicans, uh, Senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler refused to apologize for playing into Trump's election conspiracies. Their spokespeople used uh, both of them used similar languages. They both condemned violence of any kind before doubling down on the president and his allies baseless criticism of their own state's election administration. Uh, Leffler's uh, communication director uh, tweeted, uh, like many officials, as someone who has been the subject of threats, of course, Senator Leffler condemns violence of any kind. How ridiculous to even suggest otherwise. He then continued to say, we also condemn inaction and lack of accountability in our election system process and won't apologize for calling it out. Senator Leffler will continue fighting to ensure we have a fair, trusted and accurate election because the future of our country is at stake. Well, hey, if the future of our country is at stake and it is being stolen from you before your very eyes, what wouldn't you do to save it after all? Am I right, Stephen Lawson? Senator Perdue's statement was similar. Uh, his spokesperson said uh, Senator Purdue condemns violence of any kind against anybody, period. Then he said, however, we won't apologize for addressing the obvious issues with the way our state conducts its elections. Georgians deserve accountability and improvements to that process. And we're fighting, fighting to make sure the January 5th election is safe, secure, transparent and accurate. Mind you, neither Leffler or Purdue, when they called for the secretary of state to step down, Neither of them cited any actual problems in the election. They referenced, though, uh, fraud or failure, but they didn't explain what that fraud or failure was. So uh, they are not, of course, uh, fighting to make the January 5 election safe, transparent and accurate. If they actually were, 
If they actually were concerned about the voting system in Georgia, and there is every reason to be concerned about it, but if they were actually concerned, they would have joined my invitation from weeks ago, just after the election, when all of this first came up, when I invited Republicans to join my call to get Dominion Voting System Company out of the state entirely by mandating all hand-marked paper ballots that cannot be manipulated by the touchscreen systems made by Dominion that voters at the polls in Georgia are now forced to use. And these Republicans would call for those ballots, those hand-marked paper ballots, so we know they reflect voter intent, call for all of them to be publicly hand-counted on election night in front of everyone. There's two races, two candidates, uh, in each, it would be a cakewalk to do that and remove all questions about the voting system. Yet neither Leffler nor Purdue nor any other top Republican, to my knowledge, has has yet joined me in that demand. A lot of Democrats have, at least on Twitter, and I know that those who have been trying for years now to get rid of the state's god-awful voting systems, including the new $100 million 100% unverifiable voting systems uh, that they now force on voters at the polls. Folks like Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance, you've heard her on this show many times. They have joined that call, but not the Republicans who are pretending to be mad about Georgia's voting system. By the way, Marilyn Marks is a, a, a lifelong Republican. But, uh, you know, the elected officials who are pretending that they're outraged about whatever happened in Georgia... And there's nothing to be outraged about, but they're pretending they are willing to put lives in danger to keep that pretense going for our deranged president right now. And neither of those uh, two senator statements come close to criticizing Donald Trump, who is behind all of this with his fabrications about voter fraud in, in only in the swing states that he lost, by the way. Indeed, the last line of both statements from both senators actually played into Trump's conspiracies, implying that there's a reason to fight to make sure the January runoff election will be fair. That is the gamble now that Purdue and Leffler are taking. They are sticking by Trump's side. They're inviting him to come campaign in the state this Saturday, in theory. Uh, how's that going to go? <laughs> Buckle up, Georgia, <laughs> if he gets there. Uh, so they've made clear they are pri prioritizing his support and that of his followers over the safety of the uh, of the state of the nation at this point or of clarity about the November 3rd election. Democrats, of course, are uh, hoping that, you know, this is going to come at a cost to uh, to the Republicans, that Trump's claims about a rigged election and the senator's willingness to play into them, that that will uh, depress Republican turnout. It might. I don't know. I don't care. I'm more concerned about people staying safe at this point. As to Trump, he's doubling down even after Sterling's uh, remark yesterday. He shared a post on Twitter that included some of the comments from Gabe Sterling, uh, who called on him to condemn these death threats, which Donald Trump did not do. But rather than back down at all from the attacks on the two Republican state officials, Trump doubled down with even more, directly mentioning the governor who he formerly endorsed 
He suggested that Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger must be, quote, afraid of what voter fraud would be revealed in the Peach State, even after a hand count of the ballots in Georgia last week confirmed Joe Biden as the state's winner, and a new machine count appears to have done the same. Trump tweeted, rigged election. Show signatures and envelopes expose the massive voter fraud in Georgia. What is Secretary of State Brian Kemp afraid of? They know what we'll find, he said, attacking the Republican, the corrupt Republican governor of Georgia, uh, who used to be the Secretary of State, who is about the Trumpiest guy you can find in this nation. Well, Secretary of State Raffensperger responded uh, a little bit to all of this following Sterling's remarks and Trump doubling down. He responded to all of this dangerous madness on Wednesday. Didn't know what Gabriel Sterling was going to say yesterday, and that had our full support. Uh, he spoke it with passion, and he spoke it with truth. And it's about time that more people are out there speaking with truth. But also, Attorney General Barr has stated that he and the Justice Department, this is President Trump. Justice Department has seen no widespread fraud. We have had, they have had multiple investigations like us, and our investigators have seen no widespread fraud either. Even after this office request that President Trump try and quell the violent rhetoric being born out of his continuing claims of winning the states where he obviously lost, he tweeted out, expose the massive voter fraud in Georgia. This is exactly the kind of language that is at the base of growing threat environment for election workers who are simply doing their jobs. These workers are your neighbors. You go to church with them, you shop in the same stores, and your kids go to the same schools. They don't deserve what is being thrown at them. No, they don't. And if you've listened to the show at all for even a few minutes over the past year or so, you likely know my feelings about the lousy job that Raffensperger has done for the voters of Georgia. But neither he nor especially election workers who have risked their lives this year to run our election, to carry out a full statewide hand recount thereafter, and now another statewide machine count, they do not deserve this. They deserve our thanks and our gratitude. They deserve that in any year. But especially this year, in the impossible conditions under which they've been forced to do far more than any election workers have arguably ever had to do in any election in this country. Now, Raffensperger went on to announce that the second uh, recount, that machine recount, as requested by the Trump campaign, will likely be recertified on Wednesday with just a few minor changes to the results that Joe Biden still won the state of Georgia by about 13,000 votes, even after two different recounts statewide. But that did not work to back off Trump either. He took to the cameras this afternoon not long before airtime to give what he described as, quote, probably the most important speech he has ever given as president. And don't worry, I'm not going to play it for you. You're welcome. Except for this one short clip, so you can hear what he is continuing to do at this point as he continues to endanger, frankly, the entire nation in numerous ways. As president, I have no higher duty than to defend the laws and the Constitution of the United States. 
That is why I am determined to protect our election system, which is now under coordinated assault and siege. Our election system is now under coordinated assault and siege. Well, what patriot wouldn't take action to stop that? Am I right? Uh, Sadly, of course, it is not only the president of the United States who is doing this, his attorneys who continue to embarrass themselves and all of us and continue to lose in court case after court case. They are now about one for 40 at this point in courts, uh, many of them presided over by Republican judges, some appointed by Trump himself and his band of uh, henchmen. Like his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, they're now going along with this as well. Flynn, you'll recall, pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about conversations he had with Russians and hiding the fact that he was a paid agent for Turkey, even while serving as Trump's top national security advisor. As Josh Marshall uh, notes today, uh, last night, fresh off his pardon for past crimes by Donald Trump, retired U.S. General Mike Flynn endorsed a call for President Trump to suspend the Constitution and declare martial law. It came in a tweet in which Flynn tweeted and endorsed a manifesto calling on the president, quote, to immediately declare a limited form of martial law and temporarily suspend the Constitution and civilian control of these federal elections for the sole purpose of having the military oversee a national revote. Yeah, I told you it sounded insane. And yes, I told you this is what they are actually doing at this point. Uh, there's a lot more awful stuff in that declaration, uh, as as Marshall notes, he says. But that uh, quote, I think, includes all we ever need to hear. Declare martial law. Throw out the results of an election that you lost. In a democracy, he says, this is essentially sedition, a call to overthrow the state. That was Trump's top national security advisor. And one of his lawyers uh, is well, I was going to say one of his craziest lawyers, but that's a tough call. <laughs> uh, Sidney Powell, she tweeted uh, something similar yesterday. So this is no joke. As ridiculous as all of this seems, this is no joke. And this is why we cover it. So you know what's going on. We will uh, take a quick break here and uh, and and cheer things up a little bit, right? <laughs> Switch gears, right? Something completely different, much more lighthearted. The recent assassination of Iran's top nuclear scientist. Yes, even that may be less disturbing at this point uh, than what we are witnessing right now in our very own country. A former National Security Council staffer for three U.S. presidents joins us next to discuss that new nightmare. Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. (laughs) 
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. As usual, everything at once during the Donald Trump era. Yep. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Let's see if I can make this transition, Des. <laughs> A top Iranian security official this week accused Israel of using remote electronic devices to kill a scientist who founded the Islamic Republic's military nuclear program in the 2000s, according to AP. The secretary of the country's Supreme National Security Council made the comment at the funeral for Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, where Iran's defense minister separately vowed to continue the man's work, quote, with more speed and more power. Israel, long suspected of killing Iranian nuclear scientists over the past decade, has repeatedly declined to comment on the recent attack. Fakhrizadeh uh, headed Iran's so-called Ahmad program, which Israel and the West have alleged was a military operation looking at the feasibility of building a nuclear weapon. The International Atomic Energy Agency, however, says that that, quote, structured program actually ended back in 2003. U.S. intelligence agencies concurred with that assessment in a 2007 report. Israel, nonetheless, insists that Iran still maintains the ambition of developing nuclear weapons, pointing to Tehran's ballistic missile program and research into other technologies. Iran, meanwhile, has long maintained that its nuclear program is for peaceful purposes only. The Iranian defense minister, General Amir Hatami, gave a speech at that funeral after kissing Fakhrizadeh's casket, vowing that the killing would make Iranians, quote, more united, more determined. Hatami also criticized countries that had not condemned Fakhrizadeh's killing and warned, quote, this will catch up with you someday. The United Arab Emirates, which just reached a normalization deal with Israel, much touted by Donald Trump just before this year's election, issued a statement condemning, quote, the heinous assassination. Bahrain, an island kingdom off of Saudi Arabia in the Persian Gulf that also recently normalized relations with Israel, similarly condemned Fakhrizadeh's killing. Their foreign affairs ministry said in light of the current situation in the region, the Kingdom of Bahrain calls on all parties to exercise maximum restraint to avoid new levels of instability. Yesterday, NBC News reported that the assassination of the senior Iranian nuclear scientist shocked Iran's leadership, but they say will not derail the country's nuclear program, which has been steadily advancing despite President Donald Trump's so-called maximum pressure policy, according to experts. That policy included withdrawing from the hard-fought six-party landmark nuclear treaty struck with Iran during the administration 
um, during the uh, Obama administration that had all but ended the possibility of Iran having enough fissile material to create a nuclear weapon, even if it wanted one for at least 10 years. Iran, by all accounts, had been living up to its commitments for that treaty, even as Trump described it as the worst deal ever made by the U.S. and, yes, pulled out of it and reimposed sanctions on Iran. As we reported on a recent broadcast, however, after several years of continuing to follow the terms of that deal, even after the U.S. broke it, Iran has slowly begun now to rebuild its nuclear stockpile. When Joe Biden is sworn in as president on January 20, he will have to contend with the reality that Iran now has 12 times the amount of enriched uranium that it did in 2018, and that its estimated breakout time to build a bomb if it wanted to has now dropped from 12 months to three to four months only, according to U.N. inspectors. Again, that is thanks to Trump pulling out of the deal, as far as I can tell, but maybe my guest coming up momentarily will correct me on that. The killing of the nuclear scientist and senior defense official Mohsen Fakhrizadi last week exposed security vulnerabilities for Iran, but the country's nuclear work will roll on, said Kelsey Davenport, director of the Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association think tank. Although the assassination represented a symbolic and psychological blow, she said, it does not fundamentally alter the fact that Iran has a nuclear weapons capability if they choose to pursue it. It has the technical means to do so, she said. Fakhrizadeh's assassination, however, was hardly the first such killing of a top nuclear scientist in Iran, as part of a mostly cold, if continuingly murky, international war between nuclear powers. In a 2012 issue of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the group which oversees the so-called Doomsday Clock, William Toby discussed the history of attacks on such scientists both recently in Iran and going back to the earliest days of the actual Cold War at the dawn of the nuclear age. He updated that article for the bulletin this week following the killing of Fakhrizadeh. Since 2007, he writes, international media have reported the violent deaths of four scientists and engineers connected with Iran's nuclear program and an attempt on the life of a fifth. The news reports, he says, on such killings are murky, incomplete, and in some instances likely inaccurate. The motivations and identity of the persons behind the killings are also obscure, but the fact that they are taking place, he says, is undeniable. He then goes on to detail those killings dating back to 2007 in Iran. One scientist, for example, who won a military prize for his work as a nuclear physicist, died under mysterious circumstances related to gas poisoning. A physics professor reportedly was killed by a remote-controlled bomb wired to a motorbike in 2010. A similar device also reportedly killed a nuclear engineer also in 2010 and injured the man who is now vice president of the Islamic Republic and heads the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran. And in 2011, two gunmen shot and killed a man later confirmed to be the head of its nuclear program. That was all before the killing of Fakhrizadeh last week, which also followed Donald Trump's own targeted drone killing of the revered Iranian general Qasem Soleimani in January of this year. 
Yes, that took place this year. And Iran has vowed repeatedly that that assassination by the U.S. has yet to be avenged. All of this now, as we are less than 50 days away from the inauguration of a new American president from the same administration that struck what had been an otherwise successful deal with Iran that had, at least for a while, seemed to cool down pressure between the U.S. and Iran and in that part of the world in general. Joining us now to somehow make uh, some sense of all of this, I wish him luck, is William Toby. He's a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and the director of the U.S.-Russia Initiative to Prevent Nuclear Terrorism. Well, that seems like a good idea. Mr. Toby also served on the National Security Council staff under three American presidents and as deputy director, deputy administrator for defense nuclear nonproliferation at the National Nuclear Security Administration. Oh, my old job. He had that one from 2006 to 2009, where he managed the U.S. government's largest program to prevent nuclear proliferation and terrorism. William Toby, greatly honored to have you joining us today on the broadcast, sir. It's a pleasure. That was quite a summary of a very complicated and and difficult issue. D- did I get it close to right? That's the most important thing for a start here. I want to make sure I didn't go off in any wrong directions. I think you got the, the key points just right. Okay. I might quibble at some of the edges, but we can talk about that later. Yes, we will quibble as we go here. Uh, while prepping for today's conversation, I should know, just about 30 minutes or so ago, I uh, don't know if you saw it, the New York Times further, furthered all of this a little bit. Um, Iran is apparently now vowing to both boost its nuclear enrichment program and is threatening to bar international inspectors uh, if sanctions are not lifted by February. Presumably those are the sanctions that had been lifted under the JCPOA, the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The nuclear agreement struck during the Obama era that Trump subsequently uh, reimposed those sanctions. How does an incoming Joe Biden administration now deal with the mess that has seemingly been left behind in regard to Iran as tensions appear to only be increasing during the final days of the Trump term? Going back to the initial days, this has been a struggle between the countries as to whose whose side time is on. Iran was trying to... uh, put time on its side by building up its nuclear stocks and capabilities to enrich so it could break out in a very short period of time. And as you said, they've taken the breakout time from about a year under the JCPOA to probably about three and a half months now. Mm -hmm. The administration was trying to put time on its side by imposing these massive sanctions and get Iran to knuckle under. Unfortunately, Iran can enrich faster than sanctions can change their mind. Mm. And so with all of this and sort of that mess that I tried to lay out there, uh, can Humpty Dumpty even be put together again uh, again at this point? I mean, specifically the JCPOA agreement that had been in place and I believe had been working. Please correct me if I'm wrong there. Uh, and and if it can be put together, how much more will it now cost the U.S. to be able to do so, to rejoin that plan as you see it? Uh, that's a great question. And also I would note that during one of the Democratic uh, primary debates, they were asked, well, would you just go back uh, to the JCPOA? And all of the candidates 
I believe, including uh, Vice President Biden, President-elect mm-hmm. Biden, mm-hmm. Um, said that it would take more than just a simple uh, J- return to the JCPOA. So probably, you're right, Iran will be looking for more, but the United States will be looking for more as well. Are our allies, uh, I guess we call them allies, the, the, our partners in that agreement, are uh, are they interested in uh, rebuilding this agreement? And would they be willing uh, to go further uh, as the U.S. may now want and as Iran may now want? I mean, th- that was a pretty uh, coalition, was it France, Germany, China, Russia? Uh, I think I'm leaving someone out. Um, but that was a, a, a pretty diverse coalition that we were able to bring together. Is it possible to bring that group uh, together again to, to even come to a new agreement? It was, and it also included Britain and the European Union acting as an independent entity. Thank you. Um, I think they are all interested in returning to the deal. Uh, the question is whether the the inherently contradictory aims of the United States and Iran are going to permit that. Um, it may be that the United States would, would, or the new Biden administration would choose to return to the JCPOA as a holding action. Um, Iran would get sanctions relief. Uh, you'd get a return to a, a longer breakout time. And then I think there would like, very likely be an attempt to negotiate additional terms where you're quite right, Iran would be seeking greater benefits, but the United States would be seeking a longer period. One of the problems of the JCPOA was its relatively brief duration, and a lot of that has already elapsed. It's Mm. now um, almost five years old, um, and the central limits began to uh, wear off in 10 to 15 years. That Mm -hmm. is five to 10 years from now. Well, if we're still in a position of great adversity or uh, an adversarial relationship with Iran, and it becomes free of all limits in, in five or ten years, it, it can be quite problematic in terms of how low they can go on the breakout time. And that had been, of course, one of the critiques of the plan initially. Oh, it only went for 10 years or 15 years, etc. But uh, A, wasn't that necessary to strike the deal in the first place with the hopes that it could be then expanded upon uh, uh, down the road? And B, you know, I mentioned that uh, during the intro there that Donald Trump's called it the worst deal of all time, etc. I didn't even get your thoughts uh, yet on the deal itself. Was it a good deal and was it working before uh, Donald Trump sort of blew it all up? I think I was a critic of the deal, but not an opponent. And mm-hmm. I think it had two primary flaws. The duration, as I just mentioned, mm-hmm. but also working with the duration issue was an issue of the, what were called possible military dimensions by the International Atomic Energy Agency. And these were a set of 12 activities that Iran had undertaken, which can only really be explained as part of a weapons program, a weapons program they denied. But nonetheless, the agency found evidence of these things occurring. And perhaps not coincidentally, that ac- those activities were run by Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and part of the, the deal was to get to the bottom of these issues. But they, the Iranians basically stonewalled the agency, and they never got any satisfaction of them on them. 
my view was that if they had actually been able to get to the bottom of these activities and ensure that they have, in fact, stopped and all the illicit equipment and materials has been, have been removed from Iran, then a shorter duration would have been okay. Or a longer duration would have been okay, even if they didn't get to the bottom of these things, because mm -hmm. over time, these capabilities tend to degrade if they're not used, and, and it would be difficult for Iran to use them mm -hmm. with the agency inspections. But, but we didn't get either one of those. And I would hope that if the Biden administration comes in and seeks improvements to the JCPOA, it would be along one of those two dimensions. It doesn't need to get both, but it needs to get one of them. So uh, a, a critic, not an opponent, uh, that said, was it the right thing to do to simply blow it up, as, as Trump seems to have done, versus uh, try to improve the deal? I didn't think it was the right thing to do to blow it up, um, because... While the administration has been more successful than I would have predicted in terms of uh, sanctions, because they've they've gotten what are called secondary sanctions, and through those they've prevented not only the United States from doing business in Iran, but most other countries from doing business in Iran. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, um, we're in a more dangerous position today, as you noted in your summary, than we were in 2018. That's certainly what it feels like. Uh, you note in your article, uh, sort of focusing on the, uh, the, the killing of Fakhrizadeh, uh, that history suggests that when nations contemplate the extreme step of targeting nuclear scientists in another country, they're focused on the existential imperative that a hostile nuclear weapons program can raise. Under such circumstances, doing something will nearly always appear better than doing nothing. But you also note that these attacks... Uh, again, not just the ones in Iran, but going back to the, you know, the early days of the Cold War, uh, that they rarely stop the programs that are sort of being targeted by these attacks. So what ultimately is accomplished by this sort of attack, other than, as you heard the Iranians vowing at, at Fakhrizadeh's funeral, you know, to, uh, to lead them to sort of double down on their resolve for this program and to avenge the killings? What good are these sort of attacks ultimately? So that's an excellent question. I can think of several possible motivations. One would simply be delay, because delay may allow for something else to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but it isn't all that effective as a policy. Another one would be to deter uh, other Iranians from stepping forward into the program. Again, Iran doesn't seem to have any problem filling its armed forces. My right. guess is that scientists would, would drop in. Mm -hmm. Um the, the other thing that it could be is a signaling of, to Iran that Israel has thoroughly penetrated its nuclear weapons program, and it's not going to be able to attain its objectives to deter them. And so I would see this as also part of not, a, not only a pattern of killings, but a pattern of other activities. So you may recall that the Israelis stole a, an archive of uh, Iranian nuclear weapons documents, including several weapons designs, mm -hmm. uh, out from under the noses of the Iranians from a warehouse just south of Tehran in just an unbelievably bold move. They, there were also a series of fires and explosions at the Iranian nuclear facility at Natanz, which haven't, this past summer, which haven't really been explained. And then, of course, there was the killing that, that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. 
I think all of these are signaling on the part on behalf of someone outside of Iran that we know what's going on within your program and we're not going to let you get there. So you shouldn't even try. But it doesn't seem to stop them, at least if you believe that's what their goal is. I mean, Iran has long said they have no interest in developing a nuclear weapon, uh, never mind whether we should trust them on that or not. Uh, do, do you believe them, William Toby? I don't. Um, and, you know, I think, again, part of your introduction referenced the fact that the Iranian defense minister was at Fakhrizi Day's uh, funeral. Mm -hmm. That's an odd development for someone who was a civil uh, professor of nuclear engineering or some such thing. I would also note more concretely that in August of 2014, the Obama administration um, sanctioned an organization that goes by the acronym SPND. It was led by Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, um, and it was the successor organization to AMAD, which you mentioned, Project mm -hmm. AMAD, which was the Iranian nuclear weapons program that ended in 2003. What is he, he Fakhrizadeh, Fakhrizadeh took about 70% of the AMAD um, personnel with him to the new organization. And it's really not known exactly what, uh, he was doing. The uh, International Atomic Energy Agency was denied access to him. Mm -hmm. So his activities have been shrouded in secrecy since then. Well, it seems like everything is shrouded in secrecy uh, in this business. Uh, many have argued, Will, that uh, and with some evidence to support the argument, and I know this is something that is uh, important to uh, the folks at the, uh, the Bulletin for Atomic Scientists, uh, that you know, whether we like it or not, as we see in North Korea, for example, nuclear weapons do seem to serve as a deterrent uh, to nation uh, to nations that, you know, that that, well, to nations like the U.S. itself. I don't know whether we would have supported, for example, the overthrow of Libya or Iraq, et cetera, had they had nuclear weapons in that regard. And make no make no mistake here. Well, I hate them. But aren't nations like North Korea and, yes, Iran sort of justified in seeking nuclear weapons? Because that seems to be what, you know, prevents countries like uh, the U.S. from attacking them. Well, it's a two-edged sword. I think that uh, it was fear of, uh, unfortunately, a, um, an incorrect fear, but a fear that uh, Saddam had an active nuclear weapons program that was part of the motivation behind the, the attack on Iraq. So that obviously cost him dearly that he let um, that false understanding remain in place well yeah i was by gonna, refusing they, to cooperate but that was a a nuclear program to develop a weapon that would have been before he actually right. had the weapon correct but what i'm saying is that if you undertake a program to develop you incur some risk before mm -hmm. you actually get there uh-huh um but and you're right though too that just the opposite uh lesson was taught on very unfortunately when the Obama administration decided to overthrow Gaddafi in Libya, who was a, just a despicable leader who did very, very uh, awful things to mm -hmm. his people. Mm -hmm. um, but he also had come forward in a deal to get rid of a nuclear weapons program. Mm -hmm. And the North Koreans explicitly say, look, we, we saw what happened to Gaddafi, and we're not going to follow that example.
Yeah, he said, I'll give up my uh, nuclear weapons. And that was the thanks he got was was being overthrown. I mean, uh, you know, this is one of the paradoxes, I guess, here when you look at this, that, uh, you know, you hate to see. I hate to see any country. I wish we didn't have our, our particular nuclear weapons. But it's almost undeniable that it does end up keeping them to some extent safe, it seems, historically anyway. Uh, Will, before I let you go here, as mentioned, uh, Iran has repeatedly said that the assassination of General Qasem Soleimani in January of this year by the U.S., uh, as Trump has repeatedly bragged about, has gone unavenged. Is that something that Americans should remain concerned about at this point? Or uh, do events like this uh, historically uh, or specifically in this case sort of become another chit to be redeemed, if you will, uh, during any further negotiations over a nuclear deal with with Iraq under uh, under Joe Biden? If presuming the Iranians are even interested in uh, striking such a deal at this point. Well, that's one path, certainly. Um, Another path is that they take the view that revenge is a dish that's best eaten cold and that we haven't yet seen the end of the story of either of those two killings. And I think we just don't know yet how that will turn out. That's what I'm worried about. Well, thank you for uh, scaring the hell out of me with that final thought. Uh, Mr. Toby, I greatly appreciate it. He is a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center Center for Science and International Affairs. You can find his, uh, well, I was going to say his latest article, but it's actually an old article from 2007 that has now, or from, let's see, 2012 that has now been uh, updated Uh, following the assassination of the Iranian nuclear scientist last week. Uh, It is titled Overview, Nuclear Scientists as Assassination Targets. You can find it at thebulletin.org. That's the website for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. William Toby, really appreciate you joining us today. Hope you don't mind if we uh, give you a shout in the future as things hopefully get better. (laughs) It was a pleasure. I'd be happy to talk to you again. Thank you, sir. Okay, let's take a quick break. And boy, after those two segments, Desi Doyen, <laughs> uh, if you're still with us, if yeah. you're if you're still listeners out there, still with us, you deserve a prize. We will deliver that prize in the next segment of the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks.
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. If you have made it this far after I uh, yelled at everybody in the first block <laughs> about, uh, you know, the increasingly volatile uh, atmosphere thanks to Donald Trump right now, uh, which is getting kind of scary. And then if that wasn't scary enough, our conversation there with uh, William Toby about what could go on in the Middle East following the assassination of a nuclear scientist. Cheerful stuff. If you've made it through all of that, then you deserve a prize. And we'll give that to you. This comes from uh, listener RB with the comment, OMG, this is great. It's uh, it's a clip from the uh, from the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. I think this week. I don't know. Uh, in any event, uh, w- uh, we can all use it right now. This is, as they describe it, the concession speech we all deserve. My fellow Americans, a short time ago, Joe Biden beat me in the election, and not only did he win. He won by a lot, actually. Therefore, it is time for me to step aside because let's face it, I wasn't probably on my game and I wasn't doing so well. And, you know, I'm the only president in history to lose the popular vote twice and to get impeached. It's time for a change. Greatest dream in the world is that Joe Biden wins because the winner of this vote was decided by a fair and open election. Therefore, I humbly concede to Joe Biden. The American people have responded. And they said to me, you're fired. Bing, get out. (laughs) There you go. That is what we all deserve. Indeed. It's fake, but it still feels nice, doesn't it? Yes, it's good to hear. Yes, we'll take what we can get at this point. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to my guest today, Will Toby of the Kennedy, Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center, to my producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's very cheery program, (laughs) you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Those big laughs are made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help support the work that we try to do every day, whether it's uh, gloomy or not. Hopefully, it's important stuff that you need to hear. At least we think so. Uh, you can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.